Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello and welcome to episode four, the fifth episode of The Boys in Short Pants. I hate that so much. <laughs> it's never going away. Uh, today we're, we want to do a little bit of a roundup of the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've got some developments on some news stories that we, we've talked about uh, with regard to conflict of interest and the conservative leadership race. And also we want to talk about uh, the big development of the last week, which is uh, the liberal uh, digging of the grave of electoral reform. Or really the unceremonious dumping of the body, I think is probably more fair to say. Yeah, very much so. Uh, which we did call. By the way, so we are batting. It was. 1, it was all. Yeah, it was only a matter of time for yeah, that one. We're we're batting one thousand. Okay, so first of all, with the conflict of interest, uh, we mentioned uh, last week in our interview with um, uh, Dr. Paul Wilson that uh, the conflict of interest commissioner may have been in a conflict of interest because she's on a six-month interim appointment um, that had to be re- reviewed by the prime minister that she is investigating for conflict of interest, thus putting her in a conflict of interest. Uh, Mary Dawson uh, has announced that she's not seeking a new mandate as Conflict of Interest Commissioner, so uh, good for her. That That's good. I think that sort of clears the air with that and leaves her... Uh, and she's had a long, very impressive career, so... Yeah. yeah I, I mean, it, who knows if she made the choice because of the perceived conflict of interest here? She seems like enough of a pro that, like, she's like, okay, you know, I've had a good career. I don't want to yeah. go out with a cloud. This, this is, like, totally solid, so good on you. I yeah. think that really... Solid choice, so yep. kudos to her on that one. Yeah, she's she's a pro. Um, that does leave the door open to her writing a report, clear conscience, and really slamming or throwing the book at Justin if uh, if she so chooses can, and as she o- sees fit. We can only hope. Uh, also, another amusing detail that came out with regard to this whole sort of uh, billionaire story is that Ronna Ambrose, uh, the, the interim leader of the Conservative Party, uh, spent her holidays on a billionaire's yacht. Yes. Yes. And uh, this actually, she's fine in terms of conflict of interest. Uh, it seems like a family friend, well established. It's not business travel. She's only covered by the conflict of interest code. Uh, so she's totally in the clear for this. And uh, as far as uh, actual like legality and um, sanctioned yes. by the house goes. So far, it's only been reported, um, as far as I've seen, uh, as an iPolitics article. iPolitics being a pretty niche um, and now heavily paywalled uh, political site. So it'll be interesting to see if this gets much traction, whether yeah. or not Aiken sort of writes on this as a follow-up to his many, many pieces on Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Um, but it's really just optically bad. Um, oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, look, it, the, the old NDP line is, is liberal Tory, same old story. And uh, if, if you present the liberals as the party that vacations on billionaires' islands while the conservatives are the party that vacations on billionaires' yachts, Billionaire. you kind of have a—that's good for you if, you, if you're the, the NDP. Right? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty hard to argue. The optics look bad. Yeah. But being in opposition is a little different than being in government. So oh, yeah, sure. You're not going to take nearly as much heat over it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's more just the irony of it. Oh, yeah, no, it's incredibly, like, so perfect— like I've been saying since November that we live in the dumbest timeline, <laughs> and uh, I think this really is another another uh, factoid to support that particular theory. Another story uh, I was very amused to see in the news this week was uh, Nick Cavallis. Nick Cavallis, yes, our our old friend uh, Kelly Leach's until quite recently campaign manager, and also known as a hermit crab, who has given up this shell and is 
climbing or uh, what do what do crabs do? Let's... I think they sort of leave the shell and well, they, uh, no, what's their scuttle? Skitter, scuttle. scuttle yeah. He's scuttling off to crab find walk, even. crab walking off to find a new one. Yeah, and he uh, killed himself on Twitter, um, which is that's a very graphic way of describing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but so the thing with staffers, uh, political staffers, is that generally speaking, you want to be invisible. You don't want to be the story. And we, we've noted in the past, that it was last week in our episode on the conservative leadership race, that Nick Cavallis was making himself the story a lot. Yes, um, and which, that's one of his cited reasons for uh, yes. for his resignation. Yes, and he, he got into a Twitter fight with Emmett McFarlane, who's an academic at Waterloo or something. Yeah, I believe he focuses on like constitutional law and politics. Yeah, something like that. Well, yeah, but yeah, he's, a, he's, an, he's an academic. So also, don't get into Twitter fights with academics. They have tenure. They have nothing to lose. Do not do it. Um, he tweeted at him in the midst of a, of a heated discussion about, uh, I think it looked like a sort of immigration stuff. Yeah, I think it was the uh, seven-country ban. Yeah, we'll, we'll get the reading here. Emmett McFarlane, two-thirds of Canadians want what Kelly is talking about. You've weakened a nation today. Live with your treason. Cock. Serious. Which uh, did not go over well. No, I imagine using uh, sort of the alt-right cuck term in a non-sarcastic format is not really uh, made for Canadian politics just quite yet. Yeah, that reflected quite poorly on it. And also, I think that you know, not only is he involved in Kelly Leach's campaign, he's also an advisor to Toronto Mayor John Tory, who sort of made his reputation or his sort of political reinvention as the sort of like moderate uncle guy who no one really objects to. Yeah, um, he's very much in the red Tory tradition, pretty yeah. centrist, um, not conservative enough for the Ontario PC in party. Fact, some conservatives would even probably say that he is, in fact, a cuck. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> but yeah, Nick Kuvalis, uh has been involved with his campaigns for, for some time. Which is sort of the irony of Nick Kavalis and John Tory's relationship is that uh, Nick Cavallis, before working for John Tory, worked for Rob Ford, and sort of who is not a cuck. <laughs> I mean, just the connection of, or just sort of connecting these two individuals politically, is not that close. They no, don't, they don't really fall in the same ideological bent. So seeing Nick Cavallis as the sort of eccentric, I'll, I'll use that term generously, campaign yeah. manager. Um, who's seemingly beloved by John Tory and Rob Ford and Kelly Leach? Yeah, makes for sort of this weird overlap of individuals that he works for. Like yeah. next up yeah. is going to be well, Rob like, Ford and Kelly he, Leach. I can sort of get a little right? bit in that they're both like anti-elite, pretty openly racist. But, but like. the reason the reason I hesitate to make that connection is because that's not what Kelly Leach was ever known for before No, that's election. true, but that was her, like, reinvention as, like, an anti-elitist. Yeah, which is why I see it as him, like, picking up her shell and living in it for a while. Yeah. And who knows who he'll do that to next. But John Tory would never really succumb to the Nick Cavallian rhetoric, if I'm going to use No, term. no, he was, like, he, well, especially because he was running against a Ford. Yes. And also on the other side, Olivia Chow. So, yeah, like, so for him, the sort of, like, moderate the mushy middle is kind of where he wanted to be. Yeah, so it's sort of interesting that John Tory is still feels so indebted to Nick Cavallis that he won't openly disavow uh, his role or ever hiring him that again. That was very odd. He's taking a very soft line of saying, like, listen, uh, future staffing decisions about future campaigns have yeah. not been made yet. Yeah. Therefore, I'm not willing to come. Honestly, that surprised me because I personally feel like 
it, you say something like this in, in most political parties and you're like out of work forever. Um, it just in ter- not just in terms of the content of the comment, which was bad enough, but the fact that it happened, that you allow yourself to be lured into you know Friday night Twitter fights with academics is like not indicative to me that you are to be trusted in a campaign supervision role. I mean, we have a principal secretary to the prime minister who regularly gets into Twitter fights. Yes, that is true. And also who whose tweets in some cases have not aged well. Uh, because, you know, like I remember especially uh, during the midst of the, the Saudi arms thing, someone dug up a tweet yes. of his from before they formed government about how the Saudi regime is awful and how can we be selling them weapons. And uh, So, sorry to clarify. This is, we're talking about Gerald Butts, who is the principal secretary, which is in the top two most senior roles working for uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And he is a well-known Twitter enthusiast. I, in fact, would love for someone, I'm looking at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation here, (laughs) to add up the estimated amount of time the man spends on Twitter in any given day. Um, Because he will get in tiffs just today. I was reading about a a tiff between him and uh, John Iveson, in which Gerald Butts was calling out post-media for their coverage of various various things yeah you know that, that old saying about don't get into fights with people who buy ink by the barrel yes yeah but i mean that said the government you know buys lots of things by the barrel so i guess uh when you've got that and i honestly i think it's a they're, sign they're looking me. at subsidizing ink by the yeah, barrel that's that's so <laughs> it cuts both ways uh and yeah to, to in, in gerald butt's fairness i think uh it speaks to the the confidence that the prime minister has in him that he like allows him to just sort of like wander off and get into fights on Twitter. Yeah, there's no precedent from the Harper years where like really not Nigel because, uh, Wright or any of the other chiefs of staff were on Twitter, if at all. I'll say I this for Stephen Harper. Would he be would, astonished he would there. never tolerate staffers like getting into fights with journalists on Twitter. That no. would not happen. Not a thing. That, that, that staffer would be out of a job within hours. Like the only circumstances I can think of would be, uh, it was sort of considered the nuclear option would be if directors of communications were tweeting at journalists for corrections. Okay. It would be sort of the escalation of sort of a spat that was happening behind the scenes. Well, speaking of, actually, um, there was a big story, as, as many Canadians are, are probably aware, of a, a massacre at a, at a mosque last Sunday. Um, yeah, pretty awful. Yeah, absolutely terrible. Um, but Fox News had a tweet up, the U.S. outlet had a, had a tweet up, basically saying that one of the shooters was Morocco, and it turned out that the guy who, who was originally from Morocco had just been a witness to the shootings, had been kept in like in custody because you know they, they questioned him and everything. But they hadn't taken the tweet down, even though it was at that point inaccurate. Yeah, several um, several many hours old and had been disproven. Yeah, and of course you had the sort of Pepe Brigade like in the mentions, being like, oh my god, you know, doing being the Pepe Brigade. Um, so the PMO apparently reached out, uh, sort of through back channels, uh, to get them to take down the tweet. Fox did not. And then we had the sort of, I th- as far as I can tell, not very precedented step of a, of a public letter uh, yes. sent out from the PMO uh, to remove the tweet. In fact, it was posted on Twitter very, very publicly, not just, you know, mailed to them. I mean, um, that's the classic. You lick the stamp, you put it on the letter, you drop it in the post office. Yeah. And then you send... A copy of your letter to the media immediately like yeah, this exactly. happened to me so many times in office where it's like why haven't you responded to this it's like it's in the mail <laughs> yeah no it's exactly that it was the media would call you and be like what's your response to this letter and be like would you mind sending it along i'm um, sorry could you please send us a copy it's like oh the critic for this said he sent you a letter on it it's like well take some time to deliver two to three business days i think is the quote uh, we'll respond to it in due time 
Till then, I have no idea what you're talking about, so I'm going to need a copy from media, which I imagine is the case here, because yeah. it's going to have to go through Canada Post to U.S. Yeah. Post it. Like, this, this was the classic case. Uh, and I, I should mention, one of the reason people send things over letter rather than email is because it comes across as much more official. Yeah. Sending someone a proper letter on it is still considered to be, like... A higher escalation. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's the formality it's of very, it. It's very, yeah, because the time and effort it takes to do that, I guess. But it, it's such a weird, like, social artifact. Yeah, so a lot of the way government functions, particularly correspondence between the PM and ministers, I don't know if it's still the case under the Trudeau government, but was through letters. Letters were an instrumental part of the bureaucracy and about how records are kept and things along these lines. So letter sending is very much alive yeah. and well within the structure of government and communications yeah. as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've often had it pointed out to us that uh, the Harper government was a very on-paper government. Yeah. Everything sort of had a paper flow, uh, very, very by the book, uh, which, you know, led to problems for them occasionally down the road when they had, you know, questionable decisions made by high-level staffers, but... Uh, for the most part, like I, frankly, if I were prime minister, I'd also run my office that way. So you know. yeah. yeah, keep keep everything on paper. Uh, stop this word of mouth stuff. Yeah, and exactly. Like, to not well, to I'm, get too I'm far who, off track here. I'm a guy who barely remembers phone calls after <laughs> I've gotten off the phone. So for me, like having a paper trail, very good. Well, that's one of the things that came out in the Duffy uh, disclosures, where all the evidence was done via email and paper, yeah. and so there was a huge, huge paper trail to follow. Yeah, uh, showing really the inner workings. Yeah. and of no, no the secretaries scandal. to delete the tapes. You know, it's uh, Watergate style. Watergate style, or uh, Kathleen or McGinty government. Ah, which deleting is, uh, emails. Yeah. Of course. Uh, so to continue on, actually, we're really on Jesse Brown's turf this week, but uh, <laughs> uh, the rat fucking of Kevin O'Leary. Yeah. So do you want to explain that term first off? So, because that's not just an obscenely uh, no, it, it's obscenely really it's, it's inappropriate a, term. It's but a, it actually a, is a, basically refers to to a political setup, right? Like where you're you're baited into doing something, uh, or you do something and they just like it gets framed in the worst possible light. So Kevin O'Leary had a video or. A, shot or whatever of him at, at a gun club like you know shooting down a range and the cbc ran it as kevin o'leary you know post pictures like f- shooting guns on day of funeral after like massacre at quebec city mosque which is like true like it did happen on the same day but it is i think the most ungenerous possible reading of yes. that i mean like Far be it for me to be sympathetic to Kevin O'Leary. I'm not. Uh, just like, wow, that was pretty brazen. They uh, they did not hold back on that. I mean, these things have happened in politics, and there's a lot of... Well, that's uh, why it's a term, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I meant specifically with Twitter, where uh, sometimes people schedule their tweets. Right. Where if you're not in the office or something else is going on, and you want to make sure that tweets are coming out at regular intervals, you write them all up in the morning. Yeah. You'll use a program like TweetDeck or Hootsuite. And then they'll come out systematically throughout the day. Yeah. The problem with that is if something is going on that you're unaware of yeah. or something changes during the course of the day, your tweet will come out and it'll look incredibly gauche. Yeah. And that's honestly like part of your job as a staffer is to think of these things. If you're like a communications guy. I mean, you're, you've been the communications guy, so you tell me. But it, I feel like 
No, no, it is. Yeah, but at some can, point you can always you get like, caught off guard. Yeah, for sure. Like but mistakes not, happen. This is but one this of wasn't the reasons. News. No, it wasn't news, and it was the same week, so there yeah. was obviously a mistake and like made they, somewhere like, in there. That's the kind of thing where like you want to maybe think about the optics of what you're doing before yes. you schedule it. So I mean, it happening on the same day, apparently within 15 minutes of the start of one of the funerals or something. Like yeah, that. exactly. Terrible. But, like, um, they knew it was happening. Or, like, you know, they could have known that it was happening that day. It's not like you schedule a tweet in the morning that's, like, uh, the Freedom to Drive Fast in School Zones Act that you're pushing. And then, like, at 3 o'clock and your tweet's coming at 3.05, like, six toddlers get run over by a Hummer or something, right? <laughs> like, it, it, it could have been foreseen. There, Yeah. So, it was reasonably foreseeable. There were facts that were missing, apparently. And that decision was made. The fact that it fell on the same day isn't really what I take issue with from a communications perspective because it's reasonably conceivable that the communications guy who wrote or scheduled or published this tweet wasn't aware of the overlap there. The overlap he should have been aware of was that this was in the same week within days of the mosque shooting. And yeah, maybe so just tone down the gun stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, that's exactly it. Within, you know, a week or two of a major gun crime, usually you don't want to be emphasizing that. Yeah. And so that's the problem I have from the communications uh, perspective. I'm willing to see the other half as an honest mistake. Sure. Yeah, no, I don't think it's like anything but an honest mistake. I just think that it was an avoidable mistake. Yeah. I mean, these obviously... By definition, mistakes are avoidable. True. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair I, enough. I think, well, I think my, my toddler situation, it's kind of like you get caught with your dick out, but like, yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's just the problem I have with that side of it more than um, the, the day of story, which is the highlight of the CBC's conversation. I think the other thing I note, I would note from the communications perspective about that tweet is it's like Kevin O'Leary in a tropical blue shirt shooting guns with a sign that says something like Miami Gun Club yeah, dude, behind him. Just, uh... um, so the re-emphasis that you're not in Canada and that we're all suffering through a cold, brutal winter yeah. whilst you're well, and like, you know, th- this continuing whole to live too, right? in the United States is interesting. Um, if I were an advisor to Kevin and to play strategist here for a minute, one of the first things I would do would be to book him a plane ticket to Canada, a, a one-way plane ticket to Canada, and say, like, wrap up all your business in the United States, you're living in Canada for the next five months. He seems totally unwilling to do that, though, in the sense that, like, he was asked about this, right? And he was like, well, I'm a global investor. I got, you know, I got to be places. And it was like, well, okay, but you're also running to be leader of the opposition in one country, and that job actually requires you to be places. Yes, it's a big job. Yeah. And it leaves doubts because he's expressed um, his interest not to run for a parliamentary seat. Yeah. Um, if he wins it. We, we were discussing, I think, the sort of like parliamentary niceties about this and that like leader of the opposition is a parliamentary position, right? It's the sort of like recognized caucus leader of the second biggest party. Correct. In yeah. tradition. Well, the second biggest party that is in opposition. Because like, theoretically yeah. you could have like two big parties that are in government, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so that, that's sort of just the convention though. Whereas there would still have to be someone named as 
you know, the leader. Like that opposition, go, like house leader I mean, or something. Technically, under parliamentary thing. tradition, they yeah. would be the leader of the opposition, but it'd be like a deputy leader. Or yeah, something, exactly. Something along those lines in Within practice. Within the conservative party. Um, but it does leave the question of what is he going to be doing during this time? He's going to be leader of the party. And is he going to be in Canada campaigning around to universities as he's um, professed? Or is he going to be... Yeah, getting that 1825 demo. Flying back and forth to the United States. Filming Shark Tank. Filming Shark Tank, among <laughs> other commitments, promoting products, and living in Boston, you know. I mean, Boston's not that far. Five five hours a week, or five days a week. Yeah. And he, he I mean, t- we should be fair to him, he probably is in Canada right now, or will be very soon anyway, uh, because there is a conservative leaders debate uh, Saturday night, or recording Saturday afternoon. In Halifax, uh, so and he is attending. Yeah, I look forward to uh, dissecting that after it happens. But overall, like my take on it is, the Conservative Party have previously dismantled a liberal leader. Yeah. Over his like unwillingness, this. yeah, or over his history of living in the United States and some of the quotes he had. And Kevin O'Leary has all those same weaknesses without the willingness to move to Canada yeah. and become an MP, which is something that Ignatieff did do. Yeah, and, and you know, I hate to do, do the Trump comparison here because I think most of the time it's deployed, it's quite lazy. Um, but I think there is a thing where Ignatieff had the sort of... He was embarrassed about it, Yeah, right? He, he clearly like tried to get over this and thought of it himself as a problem to be overcome through through measures of goodwill. O'Leary does not do this. He clearly does not really care that he spends a lot of time in the U.S. or does not see it as a problem and thinks that people who are suggesting that it is a problem are, are wrong or, you know, somehow to get him. And this is kind of similar. And this is where the Trump comparison comes in. The reason Trump was unable to be, you know, there's a sort of there's a sort of media cycle of, of you know, candidacy ending gaffes where the media declares it a gaffe. The candidate kind of hides for about 48 hours, then sort of says, you know, oh, we're sorry, or whatever. And then they never really recover because then they've been humiliated sort of on the national stage. Trump was able to get over this by, like, never really apologizing for anything. Yes. Uh, so even when the, the infamous Access Hollywood tape came out, his apology was, like, one-third apology, and then the other two-thirds, like, Bill Clinton is terrible and did the same thing. It just sort of really undercut the humiliation by sort of spreading it around. You know, this makes the Anthony Wieners of the world sitting at home. I know, dude. That guy must feel like, the biggest idiot. What did I do? Why did I apologize? Yeah, Why absolutely. I just doubled down. And he be should have like, just been like, "It's good, actually, to send my dick all love, over the place." Love sending twi- yeah. <laughs> Twitter pictures. It's just you know, it's fine. It's what I do. So on yeah. the other hand, I feel like that maybe like keeping up. A picture of like a, a substantial tent in your boxers on Twitter, like forever, is like maybe yeah. Anyway, then again, Ed Balls. Uh, for people who are unaware of this, uh, that he was the um, sort of finance critic or shadow chancellor to uh, to Labour leader uh, Ed Miliband in the UK, famously tweeted his own name at one point, and that that is now celebrated every year as Ed Balls Day. Uh, he also had the best name ever i mean it's just it's just a <laughs> confluence of things that just made it super funny uh yeah. and he he just sort of like embraced it and it ended up fine i could see that ending someone's career but he sort of like rolled with it i mean that one's pretty harmless in the spectrum of ones we're talking here between yeah. uh the access hollywood tape to uh oh yeah for sure like tweeting your own name is not as bad as sending like underage girls your, your dick 
but like, yeah, fair enough. But still, I think the fact that he rolled with it had a lot to do with the fact that he came out. Well, I mean, I say he came out on the other end. He did lose his seat in the last election, but I think that was more to do with labor being terrible. Anyway, we'll we'll get too sidetracked into UK politics here. Um, So the other big thing that happened this week was uh, the liberals, as we predicted, uh, finally sort of putting a pin in electoral reform and saying, yeah, we're done with this. Uh, It's not happening. Sorry about it. Yeah, so the way this announcement was made was, I'd say, 90% through the mandate letter release. Yeah. Um, So the mandate letters are basically the directions that the prime minister gives to his or her ministers uh, when they get into the portfolio or at significant intervals when they're feeling like they want to update them. And so Katerina, Katrina? Karina. Karina Gould was... uh, her mandate letter went online and was published, and then shortly afterwards, uh, she did a scrum in the foyer of the House of Commons, and the mandate letter says something along the lines of, that electoral reform is dead, changing the electoral system will not be in your mandate, um, because there hasn't been a consensus found in the consultation so far. Right. So there's a kind of a, a lot to unpack there. Uh, so it's, they, they've said at multiple times and during the campaign, obviously, that you know, uh, bringing in that 2015 would be the last election held under the two thousand under the first <laughs> past the post system. Sorry, um, and that obviously is now like that's you can't really wiggle out from that and say like, well, you know, no, it's, uh, it's the broken it's like, the no. brokenest of promises. Yeah, they're, absolutely. They're trying to bury that body and say, listen, for unforeseen reasons of no consensus, <laughs> we are going to break that. Yeah. We're going to break that promise and we're going to move on because it is bogging down way too much of our political capital. Yeah. So let's try and make a clean break and walk away from it. Yeah. One thing I find really interesting about this is um, we've mentioned that we, we thought from day one Karina Gold would be the, the gravedigger for electoral reform. And that, as I said earlier, like she's more like the unceremonious body dumper. But what's really interesting is she met with uh, NDP uh, Democratic reform critic Nathan Cullen uh, the day before this came out. And he seems to feel that he's been hard done by that he, he had like a somewhat productive conversation he feels misled i don't know how uh, true that is i mean so personally i think there's no way karina gold got put into this position without knowing what was coming down the pipe i you i just don't get no, really I you disagree. actually think she I, was uh, set up i disagree you think I, she accepted the democratic reform portfolio without being told by the prime minister we're not moving forward on the biggest ticket item within that portfolio that's conceivable to me. Really? Wow, yeah. that's mind-boggling. Honestly, to me, I think that's like a bargain. Like, you're like, okay, we will put you in cabinet, but you've got to bury this stinking corpse first. It's conceivable to me, depending, like, obviously it's different, uh, different management styles and stuff like that, but that this type of decision might not be one, specifically the mandate letter, that she might have had a 12-hour lead on media. That blows me. In, in terms of reading it. That, I have a real hard time thinking that's the case. That ministers and even junior ministers would not be privy to this decision that was made at the highest levels of prime minister's office, at the prime minister's office. And then she basically would have been given the mandate letter. Like, my theory, this might be doing, uh, might be too generous to them, but is to say that she only got the mandate letter at some point between Nathan Collins meeting and the um, 
And the announcement. And the, the announcement day. the next day. Because yeah. it's sort of like Occam's razor here. Like, what's what's the explanation for her actions? Well, I think, I find it very hard to imagine a situation where a minister gets appointed in a contentious portfolio and does not get briefed by the prime minister prior to accepting the position that the priorities of that portfolio are completely changing within, like, 72 hours. I don't think... I just... I cannot see that happening. I understand why you think that, but that doesn't surprise me. I'm, I'm not shocked. I, I mean, would not be shocked if that were a revelation that were in fact true. That would absolutely blow my mind. And I think my theory goes further to explaining her actions, which is, why would you take a meeting with the opposition critic? Cynicism? No. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like... It's like this 28-year-old minister who, I must imagine, She's is, been top uh, of her class a long time. I think she gets how the game is played. I don't see it as past her. It's, I, I don't think anything has passed anyone in politics, but I just think um, you're trying to do this goodwill gesture, meet with your critic, have you know an in-depth conversation, and things along those lines. You're not doing this just to go out the next day and stab them in the back well, and be the, like, yeah, <laughs> on the other hand, though, <laughs> just, just kidding. If you don't take the meeting, then it looks like something's up and the government's not ready to announce it. I think the, the, uh, the much easier grenade to fall on there is to have a somewhat awkward meeting where, you know, in the back of your mind, it's a waste of everyone's time than to, like, give away the game. No, you can push back meetings. The, the, the benefit of ministers is that your schedule is incredibly busy. That is true. And so anytime you decline a meeting on the basis of the, I think the verbatim quote for this that we use time and time again, was my schedule does not permit, is because the schedule actually doesn't permit in so many instances. Like yeah. every hour of every day was packed and food was hard enough to get in, not to mention <laughs> extraneous meetings where yeah. like getting food was an incredibly difficult task on some days. So choosing... Which meetings you take is very much at your discretion. That's you, fair. You don't have to be pushed or bullied into a meeting by anyone. I just, I yeah, I think we, we've we've pretty much exhausted the our disagreement there, but I, we'll leave it up for listeners to decide. But yeah, for I just, I cannot see a situation where someone gets handed just like a to support Laurent. Send yes to <laughs> actually, yeah. If you guys actually do, like, <laughs> I, I would love to hear from people about this. So uh, yeah, we're we're on Twitter at Short Pants Pod. Uh, send us your thoughts. You can let Laurent know it. how wrong he is. I, I do not think I'm wrong, personally. Uh, okay, so I wanted to talk about the reasons they gave. Yes, rant about electoral reform. I'm waiting I'm waiting for your unfiltered, yeah, unvarnished rant yeah, here. Yeah, Etienne doesn't really care about Getting this. Getting all fired up. Etienne doesn't really care about this. I don't know, how did you feel about the whole, like, whatever, but we have to have a referendum thing? Um, personally, and this just so happens to coincide with the values of the Conservative Party... I am not anti-referendum, like many, many people are these no, days. No, and that, that the conservative position was, yeah, um, wanting a referendum. Yeah, no, no. That, that impartial was, to the rest That was a, a digression. So I, I still believe in referendums as an important tool in our, uh, in our government. Um, but on top of that, I think the electoral uh, system that we have is so fundamental to our government that if we're going to live in a democracy, voting on that should be a crucial component. That no single government with a majority no, mandate yeah. or a false majority at only 40%. I, I would definitely agree that like one party. unilaterally. Yeah. Or even with the support of another party, I, I still don't think. It, it allows for too much politics yeah. in it. Yeah. Where, say, like parties, the parties NDP, break their promises all the time. Yeah, if the Liberals and NDP had agreed on something, like I still think there would have had to be some legitimating mechanism there just to... Like, I, I agree that there had to be some... I don't know if a referendum is the best way to do it, but there has to be something. Ultimately, the electoral system belongs to the people. Yeah. Power in a democracy comes from the individuals yeah. who sort of opt in 
more or less. Um, so for the elected members, even though they're elected, to change the system under which they're elected, I think is just yeah. philosophically wrong. Sure. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get into exactly. So basically, their reasons were um, that fringe parties might make it into parliament on in a proportional representation system, and that. Uh, referendums are divisive and also that uh it would promote you know regional discord and then the biggest one was no consensus right no consensus but yeah that's kind of that's the dumbest of the reasons i think um so on on the regional the regional parties thing um it surprises me that no one in the liberal caucus seems to remember the 1993 election when the bloc quebecois was the official opposition uh because you know with like what 20 not 20 percent of the vote maybe 5 10 like you know like they, they had about 50 percent in quebec so uh it's actually very easy for regionally based parties to have immense breakthroughs in first past the post systems if you look at the uk right now for instance the uk independence party uh the sort of uh pepe vehicle in the uk uh got about 12 percent of the vote in the last uk general election but two seats and the scottish national party uh, which runs candidates only in Scotland, um, won about 2-3% of the national popular vote, but about 60 seats, uh, just because they managed... This is the thing with regional parties. If you run on a platform of the region where we're running candidates is cool and good, uh, you're going to be able to get more votes in that region more easily than any other party. That's just kind of the way it goes. And in Canada, we've had that in the Bloc Québécois and the Reform Party. Uh, that was, you know... Pre- pre- predominantly western based for a long time so absolutely i just i just don't think if you want to talk about like regional divisions that a first past the post system is in any way meaningfully better than any other system and in fact i in mean many ways it's a lot worse one of the strengths of first past the post is the ability for regional representation right exactly that's the whole point of the damn system uh though i think part of their their subtext there was with regard to the referendum that if there is a referendum on electoral reform the liberals then have to decide what is the threshold at which it meets success? And 50% plus one is apparently not good enough in many situations. Clarity Act model. Exactly. So you have to sort of decide, okay, so what is a clear majority? Which, as I've often said about the Clarity Act, is a question that the Clarity Act actually does not lend much clarity to. Um, oh, you thought, you thought you were clever with that statement, didn't you? <laughs> it's quite uh, frustrating. Oh, fringe parties. Uh, fringe parties is something, okay, like, all right, um... I can sympathize with the idea of not wanting the, the, the Pepe party, you know, getting 3% of the vote and having a couple seats. I don't like the Pepe party, right? Do you want to explain what Pepe is? Because it I'm is gonna actually... Get, I'm going to get punched if I start talking about Pepe. That's what happens. <laughs> um, um, so Pepe... Oh God, I can't believe we're doing this. Just quick. Just quick. Pepe is a frog... Two that, sentences. Pepe is a frog that Nazis like. Is that... There we go. Yes. Okay. And it's become a symbol of the quote-unquote alt-right in yeah. the United States. So when you say Pepe party... Uh, Pepe Party, you're referring to sort of the alt-right, Nazis. the Donald Trump Let's party. Let's call, call them what they are. Um, anyway, I can sympathize with them in not wanting to have seats in parliament. On the other hand, what that is, it's basically just saying, like, we can't win the argument. It's, you know, we, we, our, we do not have an answer for the people who are motivated by these things, um, which I think worries me more than, like, some other things. I, I, I've said this about the Liberal Party and their government before, but I find that thus far it has been a government that is not actually all that sure what it wants to do, 
it does not have a grand macro vision of what they want society to look like. They sort of inherited a slow economy, and not out of any fault of the conservatives, just the Western economies right now are kind of stagnant. Well, most um, oil. And have but... low growth. Well, yeah, that too. But low growth, I think, is pretty common across most of the democratic West. Um, and basically, their response to that has been to like keep saying innovation, innovation, innovation over and over and over again until it comes true, or like praying for the technology fairy. There's a, there's a whole like cargo cult fixation with the word innovation that like if they say it enough and they, they build enough like university clusters like I, I swear to God we're gonna go to, like Fredericton in two years and like wander out a little bit and they'll have built like a whole like Potemkin University just the hope of attracting the technology <laughs> gods to like make the next Google or whatever. Uh, so I, I think it's just an, another example of like how rudderless not just the Liberal Party of Canada but like sort of center left centrist movements throughout the democratic west that honestly have no idea what the hell they're doing anymore that was quite a tangent for electoral reform yeah i'm just gonna let you have this one i'm, yeah, not, sorry. I'm not gonna push back on any of these <laughs> issues <laughs> i'm just gonna opt out of pushing back on well, these i don't lines. know I, I think i think there's a real like you know people talk about secular stagnation the sort of per, like lingering era of low growth uh, yeah it's the children of men era kind of thing um where it's just a rudderless society that has no idea what it wants and where it's going is that a reference uh, to the movie by the same name? Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. Uh, Where people cannot bear children. Indeed, yeah. Um, also, yeah, so off that philosophical digression, um, the the apologies coming out of the Liberal Party, because you know, the Prime Minister is not the whole party. Cabinet is not the whole party. I think there are members of caucus who are legitimately, as much as any other motivated voter, uh, enthusiastic about this, uh, which granted, you know, not a huge pool, of people across Canada, but quite a large pool of people who follow politics very closely are concerned about electoral reform. Yeah. Um, so we did have a couple uh, liberal MPs sort of break ranks, and I, I say that measuredly because one of the my least favorite tropes in Canadian politics is a backbench member of any party saying something that goes slightly against party line and having people jump on them for it. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's good and healthy. I mean, look, if in your household, do you agree with everyone in there about everything? Probably not. If you have, you know, 80 to 150 highly opinionated adults who have political office, uh, are they going to agree on absolutely everything all the time? It would be ridiculous to think that. I think a good metric for this is, uh, and this comes up at candidate forums and things along those lines, is asking a candidate or even uh, a rabid supporter of a political party what they disagree with yeah. of their party. Yeah. And if you're unable to, like... No, not the public eye. Yeah, and forget principles too. It's just like, like policy proposals. If if you're not worried about a journalist reporting it, if you're just talking to someone sort of off the scenes, you say, "Hey, what do you what do you disagree with that your party does?" And they can't give you anything. Be suspicious. Be absolutely <laughs> yeah. be suspicious because a party's platform is not perfect. The market is made of compromise. Too. Yeah. Even Harper, I'm sure his government did things that he did not like. Yeah. Like, that's the nature of governing, well, is that there's compromise. And he pushed through stuff that the rest of his party did not like at all. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we hear stories about, like, the uh, the uh, long-form census decision that was very much from the top, and uh, very few people in his office liked that decision. So, the nature of politics is that there's always going to be policy items that not everyone agrees with. Yeah, well, it's like humans. Like... <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, but so, when you're talking about these things... One thing that's important to keep in mind is that dissent is a natural part of this process. Yeah. And where historically, or at least lately, dissent has been happening is in 
um, caucus in the yes. caucus meetings that and happen we should, every uh, Wednesday. I think that would be a good thing to talk about people too, uh, because that's like a well-known Ottawa phenomenon. But for people who who don't, don't aware of caucus meetings, yeah. So caucus uh, is a term used to refer to basically all the elected and sometimes unelected being I Senate. Think, and it's also an Algonquin word. Oh, yeah. Un- they call the parliamentary parties in other Westminster systems. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the caucus being all the conservative MPs. And then it would be all the conservative senators yeah. would meet every Wednesday. And yeah. there's regional caucuses that happen before these meetings. So all the Quebec MPs and all the Quebec senators will meet together and talk about, you know, issues facing Quebec. And they'll all go over into one of the larger rooms in Parliament and have their caucus meeting. And this is where often these debates get incredibly heated, where this is the forum for expressing dissent within a party. But it's 98% of the time behind closed doors. And uh, different... Uh, MPs and different uh, parliamentarian, or sorry, uh, prime ministers have taken caucus meetings as sort of the temperature of the party to see how they're feeling about policy and they're very instrumental in shaping the direction government goes from time to time. But historically, this has all been behind closed doors. Right. And in the age of message discipline, we haven't been seeing uh, any of that dissent make it into the public eye. There's very little public dissent. Uh, there was some in the Harper years um, of well, pro-life think, MPs. Yeah, and I think also Harper remembered Or sorry, how destru- pro, yeah, yeah, pro-life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Harper remembered how destructive the sort of ongoing feud between like Jean Cretin and Paul Martin was. Yes. Uh, so I think there was a like, quite conscious attempt to foster message discipline in light of that, and especially because the Conservative Party is a coalition party itself. So even, even post that, when they were in election mode for... Um, the 20, uh, sorry, 2004, 2005 election. Four, yeah. Um, one of the things that really undermined them was a lack of message discipline. Right. Because you had uh, different MPs undermining the electoral campaign, and you always have crazy people saying crazy well, things. Lost Wild Rose, right? The last couple of election cycles. In, in Absolutely. Alberta. It only yeah. takes a couple bad apples during the batch when it yeah. comes to campaigns. Yeah. But one of the things Very expensive that mistakes. everyone, yeah. That everyone's advocating for in government is more room for open and vocal dissent. Yeah. And that's something that we're seeing yeah. with different MPs either going to bat for the government right now, the ones who feel the need to keep message discipline. Yeah. Or, or who or, sincerely feel that like they've made the right decision. Yeah. I'm sure those people exist. I haven't met one, but uh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I've been to many of the liberal uh, liberal MP cocktails. I guess that I haven't. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um yeah, and Nathaniel Erskine Smith, among others, has been uh, yeah. So a pro- little more props to him yeah. for wanting to come out and be vocal about his dissent on this topic. Yeah. I think that is well within it's his rights. And I would say that if it were the NDP, I would say that if it were you know whatever party, I think it's good that adults are adult about their disagreements. I think it's the dangerous angle here is I think it's dangerous for the media to jump on it too strongly. They, well, that's why this happens. Disincentivizes right? other MPs from dissent. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So media do better, do better. Looking at you, CBC. Yeah, yeah, jeez, okay. yeah. Uh, I think uh, for the last five minutes of the show, we'll uh, we'll roll an interview we actually recorded with Jennifer Robson a couple weeks ago, Professor Jennifer Robson at Carleton, who uh, is a professor of political management and uh, policy expert, uh, about her time on the Hill. Yeah, so one of the things we're hoping to try and do as we talk to political staffers, current and former, is to get some of their stories, some of their funny stories and sad stories and stories of all kinds. Yeah, funniest stories and biggest screw-ups, I think, is, is yeah, particularly, if you, if you have a really good one, uh, please reach out, uh, DM us, or even just 
tweet out us like we'll uh we'd be happy to record an interview with you yeah at some point i'll tell mine of the uh the mysterious 900 dollars pen oh yeah that's a good one so without further ado uh professor robson Okay, so you've asked for a story about the biggest mistake I ever made when Absolutely. I worked as a staffer. Um, that I'm willing, I saw you included in brackets, that I am willing to share. Yes, yeah, so right? you don't, you don't okay. have to tell us where the bodies are no. buried, where Stefan Zion's enemies lie. <laughs> <laughs> I, think th- I think they've made themselves known anyway. <laughs> um, so biggest, so I, I'm not too sure that either, so I'm actually going to give you two. Um, but there are endless stories of like just dumb mistakes that I made, right? I, so much of, of staffer jobs... For, for so long have been about trial and error. And so part of what I get really excited about but this program is I, I just wish that I had had this program before I went to go work on the Hill. It would have saved me endless amounts of grief. Um, so let me tell you two stories of, and I, I also thought about very carefully about making sure that these would be stories about things that I did, um, where I wish I could you know go back in time or what I learned from it. So the first one was I recall being a uh, 22-year-old staffer in Zion's office and a note from the department was due and you know it's like the daily briefing book was closing yeah. at a particular time the driver's waiting to grab the book and take it off to the minister and is this when Dion was minister of intergovernmental intergovernmental yeah. okay yes yeah, so I yeah. never worked with him in environment okay. I was there at intergovernmental affairs which is why you have a framed copy of the cardiac I do on your wall I do in the office yes. for yes. what it counts I have a framed copy of C51 in my room <laughs> <laughs> we all have to have the framed <laughs> copy of something right so, um, so there I was, the twenty-two-year-old, and and uh, we need we need the note from the department, and um, I I kind of knew my way around the, the the department by then, and had figured out you know who's the analyst, who's on this file, check with them. No, it's already gone to the DM's office. All right, so now I know it's in it's in the deputy minister's office, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. Right, and so people on the political side are growing impatient because the minister really needs to take a look at that briefing note. And for anybody who uh, uh, doesn't know this about Stefan Zion, for better or for worse, he's incredibly thorough, and he read he read everything, even the annexes. Right, um, so he really is legitimately going to read this note. And and we're getting impatient. The driver's waiting, and uh, you know this is getting to be a bit of an issue. So I march down, officious little me. I march down and stand in the deputy minister's office. I probably even put my hands on my hips and sort of like, <laughs> where is that note, right? And uh, the administrative assistant, you know, sort of, it's like I'm a fly. She's just shooing away, right? And I think, I mean, I probably like pouted. I might have even <laughs> like stomped my foot or something, right? But there, she was not handing over that note. And whatever I was going to do, I was completely powerless to retrieve that note from her until and when the deputy minister was good and ready to have signed it off and said, here it is. And I learned from that a number of different things. Number one, make nice with the administrative assistants and everything will go so much easier. Bees with, you know, more bees with honey. Uh, And that administrative assistant and I actually uh, uh, got on great. I had a terrific working relationship with her after I stopped (laughs) pouting and stomping my feet and, you know, sort of doing like the, where's that note? And it also taught me something really important about respect for the role of the public service and that when a deputy minister is handing over advice and putting their signature on something, um, they not only have the right, but they are required, right, to sign off on that advice Mm -hmm. to the minister. And that was the deputy minister's call and the deputy minister deserves the time and the respect 
to have the opportunity to review that before it goes to the minister, whether the 22-year-old wants to stomp her foot and pout and, you know, or not. So there was that, um, that story of, uh, you know, dumb mistake to march into a deputy's office and demand that they hand over the, the note just because the driver's waiting. Thanks to Jennifer Robson for that story. We have another one of hers coming in uh, future weeks. And I think we're going to try and include more staffer stories to yep. uh, round out the episode. Yeah, like we said, please reach out. Um, so as a final uh, plea here at the end of the episode, I'm going to say to everyone wearing a red or a blue shirt, it's your responsibility this week to leave a like and or comment on the uh, the iTunes or whatever, wherever you get your fine podcasts. Yeah. Uh, comment section, the boy or uh, red and blue shirts, you're responsible this week. And then we'll move it on so that we don't have sort of a, uh, a tragedy of the commons effect where everyone's expecting someone else to like uh, rate and review. Yeah, so red and blue shirts, which do you mean literal shirts or? Uh, shirts, sweaters, any tuxedos, whatever you're wearing, as long as they're red or blue. Party affiliations? Oh, no, I didn't even think of it party affiliated. Well, if, just, you're, if you're just, a liberal or conservative, definitely uh, do that. We're both wearing blue today, so uh, That's true. We, we would like or comment if that wasn't astroturfing our own podcast. Yeah, we don't do that. We're above that. None, none, of, the, none of the three reviews we have so far are us, we swear. No, they're actually very generous reviews, so thank you, folks. But, yeah, uh, shout out to whoever has the middle review and compared us to the weeds. Yeah, that was really nice, actually. Very High kind. Praise. We do appreciate it. Yeah. So thanks so much for listening, guys, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, get uh, some hot content ready for you for next week.